0: This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, Translated by Johanna Kallis. This is Lecture 8, given in Dornach on the 7th of December, 1919. What it has been my duty to tell you over these weeks culminates in the fact that we are about to experience how the spiritual world is beginning to enter into our present world, chiefly as a result of what first began in the middle of the 15th century. Everything changed round about the middle of the 15th century in what we know as the fit civilized world. What human beings were taking into their consciousness prior to the middle of that century was primarily connected with the internal part of the human organization. In whatever ancient writings we may still have, I mentioned them yesterday, you will find that expressions are used which very much resemble those used by today's chemists or physicists and so on. And yet, today's chemists and physicists will be quite unable to understand what is written in those books for the simple reason that they believe the books refer to external processes. But it is internal processes, not external processes, which are described there, processes which take place within the human physical or etheric body. Since the time of Galileo and Giordano Bruno, people have begun to turn their attention more closely to the external world, so that now we have reached the stage of having an understanding of nature which influences all our thinking, and especially popular thinking and feeling. Our understanding of nature now speaks of many things in the mineral, plant and animal kingdoms, which are unable to provide any elucidation about the human being, or even about his physical bodily aspect. So the time has now come for us to ask ourselves, how do I myself, as a human being, relate to the external kingdoms of nature, to that which surrounds me in the animal, plant and mineral kingdom, in the external human kingdom, and also in the kingdom of air and water, of fire and clouds, of sun, moon and stars? How, as a human being, Do I relate to all this? We shall be unable to find an exhaustive answer to this question without repeating our examination of the human being thus far. So let us begin with the human being of the senses and the understanding. Regarding our eyes, our ears, and our other sense organs, we can say that although they are connected with the other parts of our body, They are, chiefly, organs of the head, and they perceive the external world. And we then work on what we perceive of this external world through those ideas and concepts which are the tools of our brain. We retain within us, since this is necessary for our internal integrity as human beings, whatever we have experienced through our senses, and whatever we have thought about with our understanding and our memory. Whatever we have absorbed concerning the external world, whatever takes place within us as a part of the external world, absorbed through our senses, whatever we understand through our intelligence about all that we have absorbed, this is what we retain as ideas in our memory. So with regard to everything just mentioned, what are we as human beings when we encounter the world? Let us take as our starting point the phenomenon of our sense perceptions. I have already mentioned this phenomenon during these lectures. Imagine you look at a flame with your eyes. Then you close your eyes and you have an after image of the flame this after-image of the flame, which is within your eyes, gradually disappears. Goethe, who always spoke pictorially about such things, said the impression of the after-image fades away. Then the original constitution of the eye and the nerves connected with it is reinstated after having been changed by the impression the light made on it. What takes place in a sense organ is a simpler version of what goes on in your memory when you receive external impressions about which you think and which then remain in your memory. The difference is merely that when you take in the impression of a flame through your eyes, the impression then fades after a short while. But when you take in something which fills your whole being and then think about it, you will later be able to remember the after-image, perhaps even for the whole remainder of your life. How does this come about? When the simple after-image you have in your eye fades away, perhaps after only a short time, this is because it does not pass through the whole of your organism, but instead remains only in a part of it. Memory pictures, on the other hand, pass through the greater part of your overall organization, and from there into your ether body, and through the ether body into the world ether. When an image is not only an image in a single organ, but one which passes through the greater part of the human organism, and then on into the ether body, and from there into the world outside, it can then remain as an after-image throughout the whole of a life. What matters is that the impression goes in sufficiently deeply and takes hold of the ether body and that the ether body does not cling on to it but transfers it to the external ether of the world where it inscribes it. Do not imagine that when you remember things it is merely a process within yourself. When you have an experience, you cannot always write it down in your notebook, which you then refer to again in order to read about it, although in fact many individuals do in fact do just that with many of their experiences. What you do is write it into the world ether, and the world ether then recalls it for you like the imprint of a seal. Remembering is not merely a personal matter. Remembering is an engagement with the universe. You cannot be alone when, as an inward human being, you want to remember your experiences. Not remembering an experience destroys a person's very being. Consider the following example, which I have often quoted. A man whom I knew very well and who occupied an important position suddenly felt the urge to go to the railway station, without any reason, and to purchase a ticket in order to travel long distances to places for no particular purpose. He did all this in a completely altered state of consciousness. While he was traveling, he knew nothing of what he otherwise did, and he only came to his senses again when he found he had been taken in by an asylum for the poor in Berlin. The whole period after he had entered the train in Darmstadt was wiped out of his consciousness. Through reports from several sources it was discovered that he had been in Budapest and in Lemberg, whence he had then traveled to Berlin, before coming to his senses in the asylum. During that whole time his understanding was functioning normally. There was nothing wrong with it. Between the moment he left Darmstadt and his arrival at the asylum for the poor, he was functioning perfectly normally. He knew how to buy a train ticket and how to find something to eat and so on. Yet while he was doing those things, he had no memory of his normal life. He could remember his former life up to his departure from Darmstadt, but he had no memory of that whole journey. This is one example, but I could give you many others. I wanted to draw your attention to what our life would be like without any ongoing memory of all our experiences. Try and imagine as a human being what you would think about yourself, your I capital, if you had no memory about a certain period of time. Apart from when you were asleep, of course, for you would anyway have no memory of that. What belongs to our capacity to receive sense impressions, to our intelligence, is entirely our personal affair. But as soon as this begins to be a matter of memory, then what the human being experiences in his soul life becomes an involvement with the universe. People of today do not yet know how strongly this is already a fact. But it will be a part of humanity's future, which will lead to the etheric human being's memory becoming not merely a personal matter, but a matter in which the human being is responsible to the universe. When I began this series of lectures, I spoke of how, initially, in the age to which we can reach back historically, and even still, for example, in Greek times, There was a consciousness of one's country, which did not cover great distances. I then told of how this consciousness was transformed into a consciousness of the earth, and that not until recent times would it be necessary for a universal consciousness to come about, so that, just as he did in the far distant past, the human being would once again know himself to be a citizen of the whole cosmos. The path toward achieving this will be that we must clearly feel ourselves to be responsible for what we think, which can in turn lead to memory. What I have just been describing refers to the greater part, but not actually to the whole of the human being. I shall have to make a sketch to show you what I mean. Plate thirteen. If this were to be the sphere of the senses, in which I include all the senses as well as the region of understanding, then we would here reach that part of the human organism which sends back our thoughts so that they may become memories, that which in the human being collides with the objectivity of the cosmos. I have already a number of times indicated those parts of the human body in which he collides with the cosmos. If you follow, let's say, a nerve going from some part of the body toward the spinal cord, I'll sketch this here, then for every such nerve you will also find another, more or less, which leads back again to another place. In the terminology of sensory physiology, one would call the one a sensory nerve and the other a motor nerve. Well... I have spoken before about the nonsense of there being sensory and motor nerves. The important point is that every nerve pathway arises on the surface of the human body and returns to that surface while also being interrupted at some point. This resembles an electric wire emitting a spark. It is a kind of sensitive flowing over from the so-called sensory nerve to the beginning of the so-called motor nerve. And at the point, there are countless or perhaps very many such points in our spinal column, for example, and in other parts of the body. At these points, there are also the spatial points where the human being does not belong solely to himself because there he also belongs to the universe. When you connect all these points with one another, including the ganglia, of the sympathetic nervous system, then you will come to this boundary, to this boundary which is also the physiological boundary of the body. You could say that this is a way of observing the human being in two halves. This is rather more than a half, but let's say we are dividing him in half. So we are looking upon him as though he were a great sense organ. We see the way the senses take in impressions and then how the understanding, as a more delicate sense activity, works on these impressions, resulting in memory images in the form of after-images. These remain for our life between birth and death because when a memory is formed, it reaches up to the world ether. Our own ether reaches up to the world ether, and encounters take place between us and the world ether. The other part of the human being is the part which has the limbs as its final organ. Everything belongs to the limbs. Just as this part has its final organ in the sense sphere, so does this other part of the human being have the limbs the feet are grown on. The arms are grown on. This is, of course, a very rough and ready diagram. And Steiner's been drawing on a diagram at this time. End of readers aside there. Whatever has the character of the will would have to be drawn going inward, just as what belongs to the senses, to the intelligence, is attached to the other part of the human being. This will element is the other pole of the human being. Between the two lies the border, the inner border, which arises when you join up all the nerve endings and all the ganglia. This borderline is like a sieve. You can go slightly across this borderline from the one side with the intelligence, or in the other direction, the will can cross over from the other side. And there in the middle, you find the sphere of feeling. Everything belonging to feeling is half will and half intelligence. Will presses up from below, intelligence presses down from above. The result is feeling. Feeling always consists on the one hand, as in a dream, of intelligence, and on the other hand, as in sleep, of will. We have now, as it were, dissected the human being from the point of view of spiritual science on the one hand into the pole of intelligence and on the other into the pole of the will. We have seen that the physical organs in an upward direction are an expression of the pole of intelligence. So, having become familiar with the two poles, with the two aspects of the human being, we can ask ourselves, Is there something in the outside world which corresponds with what is present within the human being? There is, in reality, nothing corresponding with it. In the outer world, there are the mineral, plant, and animal kingdoms. But in what is within the human being, also physically, there is nothing which properly corresponds with those kingdoms you are now likely to object strongly, to express an objection which, of course, seems to be perfectly obvious. You will want to point out that, of course, we consist of the same substances as are present in the world outside us. We eat these substances and thus unite ourselves with them. The mineral kingdom is present in the salt and other substances we add to our food and we also eat the plants and meat eaters unite with the substances which are in the animals, and so on. However, it is utterly erroneous to believe that in our body we are connected in any way with these substances from the external world. What our bodily nature actually does is to react constantly against the influences of the outside world, including those which enter into it through our food. It is indeed very difficult to persuade our fellow human beings today that what is essential in our body is not that we take in food, but that we expel it again. Some substances are expelled rapidly and others only after the course of seven or eight years. Whatever you may eat today, nothing of it will still be within you in eight years' time. Everything is continually exchanged for something else. The activity of our body is to expel, not to absorb. The fact of having to take something into your body is the same as needing the ground on which to walk. If you had no ground beneath your feet, you would be unable to walk. As a human being the ground has no meaning for you except as something which gives you support. The activity of your body needs something against which it can react. You constantly have to come up against something such as the food you eat so that your body can actively react against it. Just as you would sink into the ground so would the activity of your body sink into nothingness if it did not constantly come up against something. You do not eat in order to unite the food with your body. You eat so as to generate the activity needed in order once again to expel the food. Your essentiality as a human being consists in the activity of expelling the food. If you want to think what is true, you can as little regard the ground as being a part of the sole of your foot, as you can regard what is in the food in its external aspect as being a part of your humanity. The human being is nothing other than a reaction against what exists in his environment. The human being is a reaction, an out-and-out reaction. Through and through the human being is activity. What I have just described takes place very differently, on the one hand, with regard to the organs of the sense and intelligence sphere, and on the other with regard to the organs of the will sphere. In this way, the human being is certainly a being of polarities. But what takes place in these two poles of the human being has little to do with whatever is present in the external world in the external world we have the mineral and the plant kingdom this mineral kingdom and this plant kingdom they are inwardly not closely related with our own being if we want to search for something with which this mineral and plant kingdom is related we must look into the world through which we live before we are born before we descend into the physical world from the spiritual world, through birth or through conception. When we cast our glance upon the plant world and the mineral world, we are obliged to say that before birth we lived in a spiritual world. I do not see this spiritual world through my physical senses, and I do not think of it by means of my physical understanding. This world which is hidden from me as though by a haze when I am a human being possessing senses, reveals itself externally as the plant world and in its foundation as the mineral world. This mineral and plant world has much more to do with our life outside the world than with our life between birth and death. The plants we see around us by means of our senses, these plants are the impressions of those forces with which we are connected between death and a new birth. And the animal kingdom, too, does not have much to do with us as human beings here. It has more to do with the period immediately following our death. Of that, it is an external, polar opposite revelation. We can, therefore, say that we do not learn about what is within the human being by becoming familiar with it through the natural sciences. The situation is that present-day science, the science particularly appreciated nowadays, is a science which does not actually contain anything of the human being. You can know absolutely everything revealed today by the scientific method and yet learn nothing about the human being, since the human being cannot be found within natural scientific knowledge. Over the past 400 years, all our popular ideas have arisen out of a popularizing of the natural scientific method. Even the peasant cultivating his land now thinks scientifically, though he may still describe it in his own words. Even Catholicism thinks scientifically in its dogmatic materialism. Natural scientific thinking Dominates absolutely everything. But we have now arrived at a point in time when it has become necessary to establish the social order. A large part of today's civilized world, and this part will continue to grow until it has become the entire civilized world, has the urge today to build up a new social structure. People are thinking deeply about the structure of society. Social demands are today arising among civilized humanity. From what has this arisen? It has arisen out of deeply unconscious impulses within human nature. And what is assumed to be the means by which this might be satisfied? By the results of natural scientific thinking. These results of natural scientific thinking are considered in the widest circles to be in quotes, social thinking, for that is what is applied in the matter of human social life. Thus in Eastern Europe, a new state social order is to be established based purely on the ideas of scientific materialism. The men whom Dr. Helphand, who called himself Parvus, has imported into Russia on the instructions of Ludendorff and Hindenburg, So that they may there set up Bolshevism, these men are an embodiment of natural scientific methods par excellence. These men of Bolshevism are practical examples of what the natural scientific method becomes when it takes root in the heads of certain social revolutionaries. The embodiment of the natural scientific method now dwells in Russia thanks to help hands railway conductors on the sealed train which traveled across Germany, bringing the men of Bolshevism to Russia, under the aegis of Ludendorff and Hindenburg. On no account must we overlook the consequences resulting from that embodiment of natural scientific methods. I have already drawn your attention to certain facts. There are two philosophers, two very petit-bourgeois philosophers. One of these, Zabon taught at Zurich University. He certainly paid great attention to developing a petit-bourgeois attitude of mind. The other is Ernst Mach, who taught in Prague and Vienna. I myself heard him lecture in 1882 at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Ernst Mach always appeared to me to be the very incarnation of bourgeois narrow-mindedness and rectitude. When we talk of the, in quotes, state philosophy of Bolshevism today, we realize it is no coincidence, but rather an inner necessity that the philosophy of Avenarius and Mach represents the state philosophy where these things are related, taking natural scientific methods to their extreme results in their metamorphosis into social thinking. That is why this matter must be taken very seriously. Natural scientific thinking initially developed its social flowering in the East, but the flowering will continue to increase if the matter is not tackled at its root, namely at its origin in natural scientific thinking. Today something like a wave of thinking and feeling is running through the world. This wave has its origin in the materialistic thinking, of the social sciences and as it spreads this wave takes hold of the social thinking called for and thereby becomes a power capable of destroying humanity it is absolutely destructive to humanity the leading foremost circles lacked the power and strength with which to pour into human thinking a truly sustaining spiritual wave That is why the materialistic wave came to the fore in the social thinking of the proletarian masses. Marxist thinking, which has been flourishing so grotesquely over the last four to five years, represents the social flower and fruit of materialistic natural scientific methods when applied to social life. And we dare not forget that this is how our civilized world is configured at present. By not noticing this, we are sleeping through the most important phenomena and symptoms of life. At the present time, one is not a full human being if one sleeps through these phenomena. Some individuals do rise above this general view. They sense already today to some extent that if we continue to think and feel as we have done up to the present, then we shall be unable to continue. We are becoming increasingly embroiled in chaos. Wake-up calls, like the following, are rare as yet, but they do exist. I should like to read one such wake-up call here. Issue 31-32 of the Socialist Weekly magazine on culture, titled Neue Erde, contained an interesting essay by Karl Polanyi, under the heading A Crisis of Ideology. He explains that a general antipathy toward capitalism is beginning to appear in tandem with a rejection of Marxist socialism. The amalgamation of Marxism and socialism prevailing today remains the bugbear of all modern thought. Every intellectual attempt to address the most urgent social problems of our time becomes bogged down in this intellectual swamp. The outbreak of the World War brought the turning point for all capitalist and therefore Marxist thinking. The leaders of humanity have recognized clearly, while the masses have sensed vaguely, that so-called vital interests will no longer dominate the world, but forces of quite another kind and type. The ever-present economic interests sought after by the imperialists and fought against by the socialists have proved to be not only utterly unrealistic and abstract, to the extent of being nothing but rhetorical phrases, but also nothing more than superstitions and empty flights of fancy. It has become entirely obvious that it is not the actual situation, but the mere idea of the situation, which is the driving force leading the masses on. This utterly paradoxical age has actually been believing in egoism. It was no longer denied, and nor was it whitewashed as idealism. On the contrary, humanity set out for its doom in the sacred name of economic vital interests, surrounding it with the halo of glory and of sacro egoismo, which of its own accord had raised itself to heaven. Materialism had declared itself to be the one and only ideal, thus bringing the materialistic world to the culmination of its journey. This idealizing of the material as the only reality has been termed fatherland by the capitalists and by the Marxists, quite openly, socialism. The result? Utilitarian ethics, materialistic conceptions of history positivist epistemology deterministic philosophy these are no longer viable in the new ambiance but marxism as an ideology is built upon this basis its time is over Close quote. "steiner again this is the wake-up call of a soul who is capable of at least perceiving what it is that is leading into the negative aspects, the chaotic aspects of our age. And then comes the question, the terrible question of destiny. Quote, what shall take its place? Close quote. This is the question asked by the man who wrote what I have just read to you. He then continues, quote, The answer to this question has no relevance for Marxism, which would be a matter of lesser importance for upright spirits in their search of clarity. If the sun were to be extinguished, one would have to find one's way about in darkness, rather than set up a will-o'-the-wisp to replace it. Close quote, and quote, continues, But what is darkening the sun for the human race is a new and even brighter sun coming up over the horizon. Having freed ourselves from the nightmare of an evolutionary theory which would have condemned us without peace, And without a home, to a meaningless existence on a treadmill of eternal collaboration, having awoken from the hallucination of a false view of history, having escaped the clutches of a fixed idea of a ridiculous determinism, which represented the freedom of our will as a game of chance played by forces at work behind the scenes, having at last, in place of a belief in dead mass, being reborn into our own self, we shall find within ourselves the strength and calling to make real for humankind the demands of socialism for justice, for freedom and for love. Close quote Steiner again. Here is a soul full of yearning who sees how we are heading for chaos and therefore asks the destiny question, what shall take its place? And who then continues with an answer which serves up all the old catchphrases that have become no more than the husks of words justice, freedom, love. They have been preached for such a long time, but they most certainly do not represent the concrete path. Today, Marxist socialism merely obscures the destiny question confronting humanity, it inhibits the free forces. Of a radical solution. It fixes thinking in the semi darkness of an outdated world of dogma. It acts by means of enigmatic auguries, obscure authorities, and mystical symbols. It blocks the clear view for humanity. Correct. It blocks the clear view for humanity. But catchphrases do not open up the view. And then the writer continues, quote, The Church has outlived its calling by a thousand years. Marxism may perhaps outlive us, but the new spirit which has been born out of the misery of this great war is sure to outlive Marxism, Close quote. But where is the new spirit, asks this writer, who does appear to possess a sense for the nullity of our time, which will lead into chaos. Well, a friend of ours, who has long been connected with our worldview, has added a few lines to what I have just read out to you. What I read to you is written by someone who sees that something new is needed, but who then merely brings forth all the old catchphrases. What our friend says is this, quote, We see here a worldview which realizes that Marxism, the most logical form of which is today's Bolshevism, belongs to the old way of thinking. It is nothing other than a counteraction to the old world of capitalism, and just as with capitalism, it is its spiritual life which is sick. Although it is anti-capitalist in economic matters, it nevertheless rests on the same basis spiritually. What ought to take its place, and also the place of the modern natural scientific worldview, is the anthroposophical worldview arising out of a, in quotes, philosophy of freedom. Close all quotes, Steiner again. These are a few lines added by a friend of our movement. They show clearly that because things are as they are, the spiritual science of anthroposophy is what needs to come about. Not until people admit that the sickness of our present time can only be cured by an anthroposophically oriented spiritual research. Not until people realize this will it be possible to evade the chaos. Without being presumptuous, it therefore has to be said that it will only be possible to evade the chaos if a sufficient number of individuals can be found who are able to give Karl Polanyi the same answer to his question, what shall take its place, as was given by Dr. Kalisko in Vienna. So long as people continue to believe that the health of our movement is to be found in any kind of sectarianism, so long will they remain incapable of recognizing its significance. Its significance will only be recognized once people realize that it is a matter of worldwide importance, only those who not only recognize the significance of this world view, but also make of it the inmost impulse of their will can become its true bearers. I do not wish to gloss over with many words what I wanted to tell you in this lecture. It will not be long before we meet again for similar discussions. There is no need to take our leave, for the interval this time will not last so long. But I do want to say that a most heartfelt wish would be fulfilled for me if many of you were to take profoundly to heart over the next few weeks what I have been describing as the most important aspect of the current state of world affairs. We have spoken of various damaging influences emanating from the elemental world in our present time. You know that an old and true perception, if one comprehends it rightly, describes the end of the worldly year as Christmas approaches, as a time during which the most spiritual influence possible within the earthly sphere of human beings is at its most intensive. Let us, perhaps, especially in this season, which has for centuries been so important and essential for human beings, although at present it has come to mean little more than giving appropriate gifts, let us during this period in accordance with an old custom of the soul, endeavor to seek refuge with those ancient spiritual powers who continue to influence our human destiny, by allowing their whole earnestness to work upon our soul in the way it stands in its relationship between the spiritual world and the human world. This is all I intended to say to you today. The date of my next lecture here will be announced in due course, and that is the end of Lecture 8. However, there was a section, an introduction, that was not included, and I'm going to put it as an appendix. And here we go. This is the introduction, in fact, to the lecture we just heard. My dear friends, once again I am obliged to begin by bothering you with a brief explanation. Since this is my last talk before we depart, our absence will no doubt be shorter this time. I really must give you this, for me rather, unpalatable information. It is about another in the series of numerous attacks we have been experiencing and differs somewhat from the others already mentioned in that it is considerably more vicious than others have been. A journal is published not far from here, Swiss-Belgique-Otremeur, uh, readers aside, apologize for my pronunciation, end of readers aside. In the current issue, there is an article on title Towards Social Renewal, beginning with the following words, quote, what an abyss it is that opens up when we move on from an Emil Wachsweiler to a Rudolf Steiner. The one is at first glance obscure in his terminology, but his thoughts are brilliantly clear. The other develops his ideas in a language which his followers may find comprehensible, but to us they appear to be exceptionally obscure. The German writer is a theosophist. One is assured that he was the intimate adviser, confidant and inspirer of Wilhelm II. Out of tact we refrain from using the designation Quote, the Rasputin close quote, of Wilhelm II, which we have also heard. Close quote. Steiner again. Well, my dear friends, let's begin with the logic, which in this case also has to do with morality, so that since we have recently been discussing various moral questions, it also fits in quite well with our other considerations. So, the logic, which also has to do with morality. A vicious rumor is put about accompanied by an assurance that one has no intention of spreading it. One does not want to make an assertion and then one does just that. For many people today this is logical. So let me counter this with the facts. Our friends will remember that over the decades I have given many lectures right back into the 80s of the last century. You therefore know that I have only ever held one stance toward that Guillaume II, which was to ignore him entirely. The only possibility was to ignore him absolutely. This attitude to, in quotes, Guillaume II was not even unique to Germany, for it was also prevalent in other countries, so it is not surprising that I, too, ignored him absolutely. Since I received this article yesterday evening, I have been thinking about my relationship with Guillaume II, and I can describe it quite simply. I saw him once, in the Royal Box, in the dress circle of a Berlin theatre. I was as far away from him as those of you here in the back row are distant from me now. Then, as I was walking along the Friedrichstrasse one day, he rode by, surrounded by his generals, and with his marshal's baton under his arm. And the last time I saw him, he was walking in the procession, following the coffin of Grand Duchess Sophie of Saxon-Weimar. I have never exchanged a single word with him, nor been anywhere near him. That, my dear friends, is the truth. Nowadays, of course, it is possible for the truth to be distorted to such an extent not only by chaps enjoying a pint and a game of cards, or by ladies nattering over a cup of coffee, but by people who write in, in quotes, journals. And, my dear friends, these journals are read without any attention being paid to the attitude regarding the truth manifested in the whole journalistic business. In view of such a degree of corruption, one can thus not avoid wondering what chances there are for a spiritual movement which says not as a fibbling joke, but out of the inmost needs of its existence, quote, Wisdom lies solely in the truth, close quote. My dear friends, it has frequently been necessary for us to point out, especially in view of what has been going on in the last few weeks, that if what we call spiritual science really wants to enter into the world, it will be essential for there to be a solid ground of the most honest and upright truthfulness upon which it can base what it wants to tell the world. I have often said that even in the most trivial matters it is necessary for those who want to participate in a spiritual movement like ours to ensure that even in the most insignificant announcements about everyday matters, absolute truthfulness must be present in the wording. When absolute meticulousness, is not present even in the most unimportant everyday matters. This has an inner power to grow. It has its own vitality, which grows until it can outdo any measure of ordinary behavior, so that finally such things can be printed and duplicated on paper with black ink, which in the end render our culture corrupt. So long as battle is not joined in a serious and honest way against everything emanating from that direction, humanity will continue to slip into things which are already becoming apparent. My dear friends, we must look squarely at these symptoms of what is going on in the world. That is why it will be necessary ever and again to rebuke every infringement of the truth, whether small or large. Those who know it is connected with the personality of Rasputin also know how vicious the neck of the woods is out of which such slanders are coined. So you see that it is not only from the angle of the church, whence attacks are becoming ever more virulent, but also from non-church quarters that everything we are endeavoring to bring into cultural life in the way of spiritual science is being threatened. As I have often said, if only we could find a more potent way of expressing ourselves than my own words have hitherto been. If only we could find a more potent way of expressing ourselves in order to counteract what is so very much in opposition to the dissemination of truth in the world. We need more strength, because regrettably the souls of most people are asleep with regard to the truth we are hoping to bring to them here. The souls of most of the people very soon again forget the immense gravity which lies behind these things once they have been told about them. So this is what I want to mention here as a matter of principle. Please, my dear friends, try to use the few weeks in which I shall probably not be lecturing here to meditate earnestly about the sense of truth and a truthful attitude of mind, about the power of a sense for the truth, and about the immense corruption emanating from the sense for untruth which is so intensively pervading the world. Please believe me when I say that human thoughts are genuine forces and that untruths, however small, are fatal for what one must call the spirit which fosters the evolution of the earth. In the long run, one cannot contribute to this fostering of earth evolution if one again and again has to come up against sheer untruthfulness. It was necessary to say this today as a preamble in order to explain to you, my dear friends, what might become the cause of the esoteric gradually seeping away out of our spiritual scientific movement. Please do not believe that this is unimportant. It is necessary for each one of you to deliberate seriously and to ask meditatively the question concerning the power of the truth. For untruth comes, on the one hand, in small things, in everyday announcements, and on the other in morally corrupt lack of logic as demonstrated by that article. Quantitatively, these things might vary, but qualitatively they are identical. And that is the end of the uh, appendix to Lecture 8